I wanted to begin today by quoting Diogenes, who we quoted one of the days of this week, I can't remember which, but what I find a little bit humorous is, it's just funny how, you know, you're familiar with things or you're not. So I looked at his name and I thought, oh, I better go to, I went to YouTube to, I, I didn't instinctively say, oh, that's Diogenes. Even though, of course, that's kind of how you would sound it out. But it just, it hit my brain as a word I don't usually read or see or say. Sure. And so, uh, and then, of course, when I heard it, I thought, oh, how could I be so stupid? But it's just, it's it's funny how our minds work or don't work. And this is not the Diogenes you're thinking of. This is not Oh, the really? This is a, 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 a minor figure who wrote a history of philosophy. Uh, and Diogenes Laertius, and that's what we know of most philosophers is just from this one book. And so it's not the it's not the same fella. It's it's not the guy who's known for. Um, I'm trying. The only thing I can think of that he did is most famous for uh, how he explained how easy it is to please oneself. Uh, he's known for. Uh, <laughs> he, he would it's do a, it in. It's a family program. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to say it nicely. Uh, he did it in public. <laughs> just to show how easy uh, life was. Those Greeks, those crazy yeah. Greeks, those, that's those all Greek, Greek to me, in, in fact. But let me let me uh, read what this Diogenes uh, Laertus... Of course, uh, he's, he's talking about somebody else, though. This is actually a quote from Thales, right? Yes, yes. Well, he's... he. Uh, we really have to find Thales and, uh, and kind of confirm it. But let's just... Let's take him at his word. He says, when Thales was asked what was difficult... He said to know oneself and what was easy to advise another, which needs no explanation. The universal truth. We got some comments on Facebook about it. Yes. We're getting a lot of comments on Facebook uh, about the thoughts. Um, yes. Yes. It's uh, I'm glad we are posting those because it's uh, it's an easy it's easy for someone to, you know, it's even shorter than the common sense scripts or commentaries. Right. And of course, we call them scripts because for years we uh, we did radio, uh, we did the audios, and uh, and so we had both the script and the audio, and uh, and you called it a script or else. I bet, I bet if you got the right contributor, a right donor, you could go back to doing radio again. I could, huh? <laughs> if they that was a lot out. of work, wasn't it? That, that was it was a lot of work. I'd love it though. It it was it was fun. You know, there was one time uh where I was actually doing the uh the what do you call it? The manipulation of the sound waves to you could tell how good I was at it. I wasn't terrible, you know, but uh but I would put together the actual audios and make sure they fit two minutes and so on and and that's what we did and had uh, over 100. At one point, I think we had close to 200 radio stations, some very tiny, uh, some not so tiny um, in some big cities, Toledo. Uh, one of my favorites was in Roswell, New Mexico. It was one of our earliest stations and they played it every day. Uh, they tended to play it late at night and so on. Uh, but but of course, that's when most of the uh, the visitors to Roswell come out. So Anyway, this week I wanted to uh, I wanted to highlight. You know, we had three different uh, commentaries 
that uh, that touched on Washington Post stories. And of course, that's not so surprising because I live outside of, safely outside the Beltway in Washington. And, and I get the Washington Post because my wife insists, to be quite honest, because I've, I about once or twice a day say, we have to cancel the Washington Post. And she looks at me and says, I'm not canceling the Washington Post. So she's evil, terrible, as, as anybody can tell from this one snippet. And, uh, and, but I love her nonetheless. So we had, we had two other scripts. One was Don't Be China. I think that was Tuesdays. And basically, this is about China suggesting at the UN kind of a new worldwide censorship regime, which, of course, all of us are a little scared uh, the governments of the world may endorse. So we just pointed out that maybe it's best if we uh, don't be China and that we should remind perhaps our uh, our erstwhile uh, representatives and leaders uh, to to uh, not be China. And then uh, we also had a piece, this was Monday, It's His Party. And this is about a guy who was fined for writing in a statement, an official statement put on his local website that he has been a lifelong Republican. And these are nonpartisan offices and the uh, in the state of Florida, they thought they could get away with forcing uh, people to shut up about any party affiliation they might have, which, of course, you know, they can kind of do that in China, <laughs> but, but uh, and too often here. But let's uh, let's curtail it. So you might want to read. Go to the, I mean, as soon as this podcast's over, don't wait. You know, uh, maybe fix something to eat, popcorn, something, but then go to thisiscommonsense.org and uh, take a look at Don't Be China and take a look at It's His Party and just see how ridiculously out of step our government often is with the most basic law, i.e. the First Amendment. And before we go one moment further, we should say this is This Week in Common Sense. This is a podcast. It can be found on Rumble and SoundCloud, but always at thisiscommonsense.org. You're Paul Jacob. It's all about you. <laughs> I'm just here to help. My name is Tim Berkula. Three pieces I wanted to discuss. All three of them jumped out to me because of the incredible spin that every article I read in the Washington Post has. And First, we can deal with the collapse of the coronavirus consensus. And this is the uh, the leader of, uh, well, she's resigned now, but was the leader of, uh, of uh, New Zealand, uh, uh, Mrs. Arden, Ardern. I don't say her name very often, as famous as she has become, I guess, in the in all the coronavirus stuff. I, I remember New Zealand, and I suspect you do too, and maybe uh, many of our listeners and watchers will, as the woman who shut down the country because they found one case of coronavirus. One case in New Zealand, the entire country's locked down. And, uh, and the reason really to, to bring this is to point out that 
you know, we were told for a long time about the scientific consensus. And of course, those two words just really don't, you know, science doesn't really work by consensus uh, so much. That's a much more of a political term. Um, but the scientific consensus that had been bought and paid for had was all for the uh, lockdowns, all for the, you know, any mandate that government wanted to make was the right mandate, pretty much. We needed to force the vaccine on anybody who didn't want it um, and all those sorts of things. And it's not as if every politician who pushed that sort of thing is in the dustbin of history. But I found this particular piece to be amusing because Anytime I hear a politician is stepping down, maybe I'm slightly jaundiced, although my experience has been that I've never been able to get as jaundiced and cynical as I need to be to face reality here in the Washington, D.C. area. So so I'm, I'm trying to get there, but I haven't quite got there. But I look at it and I think, OK, so the polling looks like they're going to lose. That's what it means. They're stepping down. Why? Because they did a poll and they don't want to lose. They want to leave a winner. Uh, and and it's it's so sad. I won't get in a long tangent here, but it's it's uh, so often people who are in public office, their method of judging their goodness is not, you know, not something where they meditate or pray or get in a quiet room and think about, are they really living up to everything? If they won re-election, they are perfect in every way and a savior of mankind. And if they didn't win re-election, they need, they need to see a shrink. And, um, and so that's the first thought. Okay, she has bad polling. Uh, so I read 30 paragraphs into this story. <laughs> before the Washington Post kind of owned up to the fact that in addition to our lionizing this wonderful woman who built this consensus and has the support of everyone because she's so wonderful, well, the polling doesn't look so good and her party's going to take a beating in the polls. And so she has resigned her office. And um, it's just, it you know, it's like when you, I, I could just read it. I wondered if they'd ever admit it, but I figured it would be, you know, 25, 30, 35 paragraphs into the story that they might get to the actual facts instead of their desire to lionize this tyrant who would lock down her country and abuse people uh, because someone got sick somewhere with a disease that is, uh, well, let's just say, not the most deadly disease anybody's ever bumped into. And and so this is, uh, and, and it was an opportunity also, uh, and and Tim, you've kind of been one of the people I know who's, who's followed this. I have several friends who've, who follow this uh, whole thing very uh, astutely, it seems to me, and uh, it's made it easier, it's made it where I've had to read less. Uh, I don't have to be intelligent. I have a few intelligent friends if I can just get a hold of them. Anyway, uh, uh, but but it's also an opportunity to point out that a number of folks who have been the trusted spokespeople for various TV networks and major, you know, big newspapers like the Washington Post, 
just recently have come out and admitted what we called at the very end, there's a link in the piece, to the piece that we wrote very early on, as soon as we found out, well, what they've admitted is that they overcounted COVID deaths. You know how China's undercounting them and came up with 36 in a country of 1.4 billion people and then adjusted that slightly to 60,000, which of course still sounds like a big lie to me, but um, because they're liars. But in the US, we lied the other way. We wanted people to know that we were really incompetent. Uh, and and actually, it's not that. It was all about bucks. It was all about the fact. And we pointed this out early on. Now that these experts are telling us, we told you at the very beginning, as soon as we found out that the government was paying more if someone died of COVID than if they died of anything else, we predicted the geniuses that we are, the clairvoyants, that they're going to make a lot of people die of COVID. That's what they're going to write on the sheet because it's money. So uh, it, it did give us the opportunity to say that as well as to point out how silly the, the nation's arguably leading newspaper is. I read that piece. Uh, you said it to me. Uh, that was kind of interesting. Uh I, I skimmed it, though. I didn't read every word of it because it was getting a little tedious. But they did talk about how awful the people were who, who objected in New Zealand because, you know, they talked about consensus, you know, how he's a consensus builder that she works, but, you know, rules by consensus. There was nothing consensual or consensus natured about the whole thing in New Zealand or, frankly, for that matter, in the United States. Uh, most of the places, it wasn't by consensus that my governor locked down my county that's never had a... Well, they say now that there's been four COVID deaths, but it's, you know, they're very old people in hospices. So I'm not sure that was a, a, a good uh, marker, but there wasn't until very recently any any at all. But nevertheless, we were locked down just like the rest of the state. That was one of the interesting things is that it was never based on what they said it was based on in America, you know, the, the lockdowns. Right. And that's just, you know, they, they said it was to protect the hospitals, you know, you in fact, they admitted it for a right couple out. weeks, a couple of weeks to to kind of even out the the uh, curve a little bit. Yeah, which which actually made some sense other than it being a a lie. Um, well, it was shown know, to be a lie when they didn't stop after after uh, yes after the two weeks. Uh, it we just went on and on. My, our governor, the governor of the South of me, did the same thing. And uh, so there's something in the air. They, the governors, you know, and here, the prime minister of New Zealand, they really do like locking down. And, and I'm sure it's political in some sense that they feel that if they don't, uh, if they don't uh, do the lockdowns, then they'll be blamed for every death that happens if they did do the lockdown. It's right. one of the funny things right. about people in politics and blame. It's kind of odd. You know, it doesn't work like you'd expect it to work. It's not really very rational. They are worried about the blowback on them, not on doing what's right for most people. Because if they do what's right for most people and they get hurt politically, that doesn't work for them. And it's it's just so obvious to see it. I mean, one of the places, why were all the schools shut down? It's It was, it turns out, and a bunch of people said it right at the get-go, these are going to be the safest places. Turned out they were the safest places to do work. Was it because they misjudged the science or was it because this follow the science is absolute BS? 
where what anytime you hear someone say follow the science think screw the science because they're screwing the science and they're following the politics it's because the teachers unions are politically powerful that's why period end of story and so that's and of course that's how societies where politics rules everything as opposed to you know money or 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 other things that's what politics decides everything. So how it impacts me personally is going to decide everything. There, there are two other stories this week uh, that we that we glean from that evil Washington Post that my wife forces me to read all the time. Uh, <laughs> honey, please, please stop. <laughs> but the but the first one is a story and and. Tim, you must have said to me three or four times uh, as we were working on this thing, this is just an unbelievable story. And that's uh, problem student, problem admin. And this is the, and, you know, with all the different shootings, uh, it may may get lost in the shuffle, but this is the shooting where a six-year-old in first grade in Newport News, Virginia, my my state, uh, shot his first grade teacher. Now she's in stable condition. She's expected to live. Being six years old and not seven, which is the age of, uh, according to Virginia law, wherein someone can possibly have the wherewithal to be deemed to have intended to commit a crime and be charged with a crime. So this this young boy uh, of six years old uh, whose whose identity has not been mentioned anywhere that I'm aware of. No, no. Uh, I've had several people contact me and say, "Have they said what race he is?" And and they have not. And of course, that area of the state tends to be uh, more predominantly black in in the schools. But they haven't said that. And what's interesting is the reality of the disconnect. And the ability not to tell parents and taxpayers what's going on in our schools is so widespread that, of course, it could be to hide racial statistics and so on, which has happened again and again. Or it could just be to hide statistics and hide bad news that they don't want us to know. Uh, so it doesn't doesn't have to be some sort of racial thing. We'll get to that the, in the next day. This whole case, it turns out that this teacher made regular complaints, asked for help, pointed out that this uh, student was disruptive. Everybody knew it. Uh, there was a tip that he brought a gun that day and they searched his backpack for a gun and they searched for a gun supposedly now it, you know that it's not like they're they're you know just pouring out information so it's hard to know exactly what's what but um and this I don't mean just the police I mean also the school district which is told parents I've told parents told teachers not to talk to the media uh, and several teachers who talked to the Washington Post made it clear that they did not want to be identified because they feared reprisals at work. Uh, that's that's how our public schools roll. And and this isn't the, the first time that we've noticed that. Uh, this is how they always roll, just about always. This is the the what you would expect, not what you would be surprised by. And um, 
and and so this child's not removed from the schools and uh and the one thing that the police said is that they don't yet have a clear motive but that it was intentional and this young man uh i don't know how long ago in the past it wasn't clear what the timeline was but also it reported told a teacher that he wanted to burn another teacher and watch her die, set her on fire and watch her die. This is not the sort of environment. Uh, this is not the sort of kid that you want to like see, you know, maybe we can somehow fit this in. It, he's not going to fit in too well. And it, it, I, as I point out in this piece, um, the, the really fixable problem is to not let school authorities hide and lie uh, about what's going on. And I think back to a couple of years ago here in Virginia, when school authorities, as if they were the, the Catholic Church, uh, decided that, that this one kid who had been uh, charged with rape could go to another school and that they wouldn't bother to mention any, but to anybody that anything had happened. And of course was then charged with a rape at that new school. And of course the authorities had denied that any rape had occurred until it became impossible to deny it because the police said, well, you, you reported it. It's been reported by the parent. It's all obviously on the record. Oh yes. Oh, that rape. Um, this, so, so, we we've seen the same sort of behavior uh, from the schools and it, it's the kiss of death. It's the kiss of death in every way. It's the kiss of death in having safe schools. When you see all the cheating that's going on about graduation rates and test scores and other things. I mean, if our teachers react to the stimulus of, Hey, we really need you to help these kids learn with, well, we'll just cheat and lie to you about the kids learning. Is that good enough? Um, it's not so surprising they do the same thing with horrible instances of bad behavior and threats of unspeakable horrors and just sweep it all under the rug and that we cannot allow that or the public schools are gone. And I have news for you. We have allowed it. The public schools are gone and we have to do something to, to rescue education for kids. Um, but there's another thing I pointed out in that in here, and that is that we need some sort of mental health, you know, uh, let's, let's try to figure out how we get mental health services to people like this kid who clearly need them. This is not, you know, this isn't a small problem when you have a six-year-old who wants to light people on fire and watch them die and then brings a gun to class and shoots his teacher. This, this kid is not, you know, it's not like, you know, a, a big brother, a couple afternoons, you know, over the next few months is gonna, is gonna turn that around. This is a serious, serious problem. And because it's swept under the rug, who would know it until he, until he shoots his first grade teacher. Have you ever seen the movie, the bad seed? No, I think I've heard of that movie, but I don't think I've ever seen it, or at least I don't recall. It's about a little girl who is a serial killer. 
uh, it's made in the 40s, I think it was, maybe the 50s. Uh, it, and then they had a TV movie remake and there was a book and it was originally a play. Uh, I thought of that when I read this story because this is a case where you know, most criminals grow into it. You know, you start small and you get big and it takes a long time to get into it. You know, especially it's usually boys in their teenage years, not boys six years old. Right. And in the bad seed, the idea basically is of genetic predestination is that this is a bad seed. This is a bad kid as the, the child of a, of a serial killer himself. But this is a girl. And uh, I, I really highly recommend the movie, even if the ending is a little bit too pat. Uh, I think it's a great ending, actually. And and the, the original movie uh, with the actress is astounding, uh, chilling. It's a tragedy. And by that, I mean the Greek sense is that because we're dealing with powers here that we don't, we, you were talking about mental illness. I'm talking right. about there's something big and deep and weird and and frightening going on in the background of the story. It's the family yes. is yes. really screwed up, obviously. You could say that, and it may be true. And I, I know that... Uh, that that's kind of my first thought always, but you know sometimes uh, I've I've known families where, boy, they sure are a nice family, and this kid's really nice, and that kid's really nice, and then this kid is you know a serious serious problem happening and waiting to happen again, and and so it's it's you know it, it's hard to know exactly what's going on and so many people in this particular story well he got the gun his mother had legally purchased the gun uh and he somehow got it and so she should go to jail and 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 maybe so maybe there was negligence maybe there's this or that but you know if you put his mom in jail this problem is hardly solved uh, you know, even if that were the right step, it's a tiny, you know, tiny inch of of the solution, uh, which seems to be many miles away. Well, in the movie, The Bad Seed, uh, the family, the, the nurturing family, the adoptive mother, they're, they're all good people. And this little girl we discover, or the mother discovers over time is evil. Right. The idea there, of course, is there's this it's a genetic factor. It's an inheritance of evil, which is a hard thing for us to take. Right. It's a, it's we don't really want to believe that that's possible. Right. But when a six year old is murderous and that's what we have here is a murderous six year old. That's that is actually we're dealing here with in that territory, no matter what we how we deal with it. We're in that territory. So we have to think about it in the literature, as I understand it. Lots of people, lots of men, especially, but some women uh there's a, a small percentage that are sociopaths, right, who don't have normal empathy. There's right. two forms of empathy, right. and they don't have it. They fake it. And some of these people, they, they turn out just wonderful. However, they do lack something. Uh, and in fact, there's a great book. Uh, well, I haven't read the book. There's a guy, there's a, a psychologist who's written a book who was studying sociopathy and it was only when he was comparing tests and brain scans that he discovered that he was a sociopath. And then he asked around, and uh, they, everybody around him said, "Well, yeah, it makes sense." And he didn't know that he was a sociopath. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not asking any of my friends whether I'm a sociopath. <laughs> I'm afraid of, of what they may say. So, this is a guy. This, this is somebody we should uh, pay attention to. This this guy. He's also a libertarian. Uh, but uh, but it's an interesting interesting story. And what I think he's discovered and what the literature is discovering is that sociopaths don't turn out to be psychopaths and really criminals in normal, good environments. 
Okay, that's what that's the, that's the general belief. I think right is that a sociopath they can learn to accommodate. They can you know the, what their de- deficiencies and this or that they make up for it naturally uh, by faking it and then thinking that they're you know they they can fake themselves out and it works pretty well. And you get surgeons, for instance, you kind of have to be a sociopath to be a good surgeon because <laughs> well, think you have to cut into people. I mean th- that's not easy. But I don't think I could I couldn't do it. Uh, you know I I've, I've seen movies of like open heart surgery and and it and it you know blood and that kind of thing doesn't bother me so much. It's it's like I can focus on the science. It's the incision, the initial incision. Yeah. I have to like look away. Yeah. Oh, it's awful. It's like this it's- pristine body and you're going to cut it open now. Right. And, that's and, uh, and then, of course, as they're pulling the rib cage and dealing with the heart, oh, that's all good. And, and even so non-sociopathic uh, doctors have to learn to be a little sociopathic. Uh, that is just a good over that instinctual revulsion. The cutting we, the we should probably have a little crawler that says neither of these guys are, yeah, are yeah. you know i think are, it's pretty are, obvious i think it's pretty obvious <laughs> <laughs> but what's interesting in this case i mean that's why i suspect it's a bad family life is that from what i can tell uh the psychopath psychopathy the, the, the horrible criminal beings who become serial killers or hitlers or whatever uh these people endure trauma as a child and that's why they lash out in the way they do and that's why they become the people they do and so that's that's why i was considering the a bad family life because i don't really believe the bad seed story i'm more likely to believe the modern science story but i can be convinced you know I, I, that's why we need to think about these things because we should really consider what's going on here and the story well, and the most horrific of the week i'm not sure i could find a more horrific story it doesn't make sense and there are so many cases where i've known people uh you know where it just doesn't make sense and and it doesn't necessarily say it wasn't an environmental thing or it wasn't you know whether it's heredity or or environment I think all of that is is kind of connected up. And I suspect that I kind of lean toward this idea that that, you know, you could be a sociopath in in a sense without ever being a terribly evil, you know, dictator and killing millions and uh, or a serial killer, whatever. But that you could then be triggered by environmental stuff and so on uh, that that makes you a really bad guy. But it's it's you know, it does seem like that is so much of what's going on i mean we want to talk about hate crimes and and all these different things look if you're murdering people that's a hate crime i hate to break it to folks but even if they're of the same race and the same religion you're screwed up in the head and and you got a bunch of hate and it's a hate crime and that we ought to we ought to try to deal with that maybe without creating all the political angles to to deal with it we ought to just deal with it head on and and when i say we what i'm always meaning is we you and the, the people listening you tim me uh because if we leave it to the experts we're finished it's it's going to get worse and worse and worse and that's generally the problem that we have on you know just across the board Hey, I, I wanted to, uh, unless you want to put in a big plug for the experts. <laughs> you know, I started 2020 with a long attack on my, you know, on, in, in social media 
against the experts, warning everybody against the experts. And boy, did I get pushback right early on, like I think even before the lockdown, the first lockdowns, I was saying we've got to be worried about the experts. And I had people who were just, you know, were really concerned about that because they want the experts to be right and rely on them. And after all, they've gone through the right courses in college and so forth. But I just I, I find that expert culture in modern times, we just can't believe them anymore. That was one of the things <laughs> that Eric Weinstein has said is that we have a, a crisis of expertise because the experts don't seem expert anymore and they seem corrupt in many in many, if not all domains. Yes. And, and no amount of expertise can make up for the corruption and the arrogance. That's part of the problem. So it's, this isn't something about, oh, they're just not as expert as they used to be. If we could just teach them up a little bit. No, that's uh, the problems over here in the power they have and the control that small numbers of people have. Um, I wanted to uh, finish up, though, and, and mention today's piece, Friday, uh, which is actually tomorrow. We're taping this early because as like a like a you know, a hundred year storm. This is the hundred year. We're actually a couple of days ahead. Uh, and let's hope no big news happens tonight that demands a, uh, a script or a commentary for Friday. But anyway, Fridays, which you're, you, the uh, people of America are about to see uh, tomorrow is the wreckage of racism. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of lighthearted in a sense and that, you know, it's all about four cars, four automobiles that are deserted and decaying in the woods of Ward 8, the so-called urban forests of Ward 8, which is not not the ward in, in Washington, D.C., which is about, I think, 50 percent black population. Uh, ward 8 is 87 percent. It's not the it's not the number one. Uh, black percentage uh, ward, but I think it's number two or something. And it's the poorest ward in the city. And so this whole piece, uh, which is was headlined, uh, um, uh, uh, oh, I'm, I, I don't have it in front of me. So I'm not going to tell you what the headline was exactly, but it's, it's basically uh, that race, uh, that deserted cars are driving racism in the city and the whole point of it is that these cars are rusted out in the woods of ward eight because of racism and because of the city's failure and systemic racism and so on <clears throat> and it occurred to me in reading i just thought the headline was so interesting and really is this race in some way is this tied to that so i read the article and there is, they don't know how the cars got there. They don't know whether they were abandoned or stolen or somebody drove off the highway and <laughs> walked into the woods and is decomposed through the years or, or what happened. No clue what happened. They suggest in the, uh, in the article, which I didn't mention in the, the commentary, that, boy, I'll bet they don't have uh, these cars in Rock Creek Park, which is a park that's in a more affluent area but of course no knowledge of whether they have them in rock creek or not this isn't this isn't about facts they didn't do a study to find out if there's more wrecked cars in the woods in ward eight the whole thing is about racism they quote a boston university uh professor 
who says that uh, this is racial capitalism where people in that area, because of their race, don't count as much economically. Um, all this different jargon and ideolo ideology brought into this to say this is about racism without a shred of evidence that it has anything to do with racism. And the one thing that we do know for a fact is that one of the guys who's quoted, who's got this group in Ward 8 to the Woods Conservancy, <clears throat> sounds like a good thing. He's getting grants to help clean up these places. There was no clear, he, he complained that the, the agencies aren't doing what they should, but he didn't say, hey, I spoke to this agency and they said no. The Park Service said, if if you'll tell us where any, any of these vehicles are, we will remove them. That's what we do. Uh, turns out they weren't in the national parks. But again, no evidence that this isn't a problem that folks are spending money to fix. Many of them probably not voluntarily. They're spending tax dollars. But how does spending ta tax dollars to try to fix this problem, how is that racism? And, and of course, it's just alluded, you would think before the Washington Post would do a story suggesting that it's racism, that they'd actually check, are they, are, were their cars removed from Rock Creek? Maybe just nobody drove their car and left it in the woods in Rock Creek. Maybe they did. Maybe we're spending millions, D.C. residents are, in fixing up the, the abandoned vehicles in Rock Creek Park or in some other part. But none of this is in the story because nobody knows it, because no one has to present facts. If you, as the nation's arguably most influential newspaper, we could argue about the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, certainly the Washington Post is one of them, you can just print that it's all racism. And you can find the professors who will give you the quote, and you can find the people being paid with our tax dollars to fix the problem who will complain about how we're not doing enough. But they don't have to show any racism. It is racism if you say it is, if you want it to be. And, and you know, the only thing I can come away with is this was on the front page of the Metro section, not the front page of the A section, but the B section, Metro Washington. The most stirring bit of racism in Washington, at least for that day, were these four abandoned cars in the woods of Ward 8 without any evidence whatsoever that it has anything to do with race. And that sounds like we have a problem that's largely being solved. Now, I suspect there are still gaps where it's not being solved, but I also know unlikely to ever get there because they're so busy labeling everything they can possibly spin into racism that they are destroying the capacity for people to actually deal with real instances of racism, which I think are happening less and less. Why? Because most people aren't racist. They don't want to be racist. 
if you showed them where they did anything that they thought was borderline, they'd stop doing it. People, that's why the racism, racism charge is so effective because nobody wants it. I say nobody. There are lunatics out there who are racist, sure. And they're of all races, races. Um, but they're the minority. They're not the majority. And they're a decreasing minority. And it seems to me that screwing up this whole issue is designed to cause problems where solutions are right there. If people would pay attention to what's really happening, the public is all for the criminal justice solutions that need to happen. Uh, other things that, you know, when when California uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2020, uh, voted on repealing the repeal of affirmative action, which, of course, is kind of a loaded positive term for racial and gender preferences. California years ago, Ward Connerly passed uh, a measure saying you couldn't use racial or gender preferences in employment or education and so on. The left has always hated it. A few years ago, they spent tens of millions of dollars to try to pass a repeal of it against tiny money on the other side. And the voters of California, liberal, solid blue California, voted to keep their law and decided, no, we don't want to return to a day in which there are racial and gender preferences. So it's it's uh, this this is a problem that is getting smaller and smaller and that could even move more dramatically to be smaller and smaller if there weren't so many people out there trying to create racism. Uh, hard to do. You've got a tough job, but boy, you guys are working hard at it. Well, I don't know much about uh, the racism of cars, uh, but I do know about cars in woods because I grew up in woods. And uh, one of the things I enjoyed growing up was to find an old wreck in the woods. Uh, and you could find old logging equipment sometimes uh, because, you know, things don't last forever. And and where do you put things that don't last forever? Well, pay to go to a dump or just find a place in the in the in, in the woods and just park it and let it go and they're they're quite attractive uh an old wreck of a car is a lovely thing to see it's it's very uh, rustic uh, because of all the rust right. and uh and it's just kind of fun for kids and to and the i actually belong to a facebook group that we sometimes share pictures of logging equipment lost in the woods old trains is of course that's that's the money one is you find an old train uh, there aren't very many of those uh, because most old trains get recycled uh, the uh, train that was in where i live in the valley i live in uh, is now was refurbished and is now in a community in on the oregon coast near tillamook uh, and it runs and it has a special you know you know, you can dine on it, I think. It's one of those, you know, very tasty right. kinds of things. Fancy trains. Yeah, right. But it's an old steam engine, and it was used for logging. And anyway, I just I just like uh, a few wrecks. You don't want the woods to be full of old wrecks. But if you find an old wreck, it's not that big of a deal. They didn't mention how big the woods are, but I don't think people going out in the woods are being overwhelmed by the, by the four cars that are rusting out there. And, you know... There are solutions to these problems if people have them. And, and you know, 
I'm not sure we want like a SWAT team ready to go into the forest to remove the four cars because, you know, you hire these people and, and, uh, and then those four cars would be removed. I don't think they're, they're adding cars to the woods in any uh, great clip. So I can't imagine there being a lot of woods in the district of Columbia. What's going on here? No, there, there aren't. Although it's a, you know, it's, uh, it's a bigger city than, than, you know, you think you go in and you see the monuments and stuff, but the city's bigger than that. I ran a petition drive years ago when we were doing, when I worked at U.S. Term Limits, and <clears throat> they they kind of screwed us over on the timing, and they left us with, I think it was either five or six days to get the 30,000 signatures that we needed. That's a lot. And so when we found out that they had, you know, basically put us in this little uh, five, six-day window uh, we could have just given up, but we were sort of irked and we qualified in that five or six day window. And we we took our entire office and uh, we helped the other D.C. people who were there. And uh, boy, we uh, we got those signatures. But I learned a lot about how big the city is and uh, different neighborhoods and so on that I probably wouldn't have known commuting in and out otherwise. Um, so there, there are some woods and, and, you know, there, like you say, there are people who need to get rid of a car and, and maybe don't, <clears throat> don't do it exactly the right way that folks say, uh, but we can, we can, we can handle that problem. And somehow I don't think it's really tied to the color of somebody's skin. Well, on that note, I think you've uh, wrapped up the week. All right. Well, thank you, sir. This is good. Okay. 